If you love me, keep my commands. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to First Christian Church. It's really good to see each and every one of you. Perhaps I have not met you in the past. If so, let me introduce myself. My name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team, and we consider it a privilege that you're with us today. Everybody here in the West Auditorium, everybody in the East, and everybody joining us online, uh, it's really good that you're here. Thanks for taking some time out of your busy day, your busy week, and choosing to worship the Lord, and then taking a few minutes to listen to some things that I might have to say. I'm very honored in that regard. Um, as before we begin the sermon time today, I'm, I want to tell you a little bit what's going on this weekend, and you're going to hear about this at the end of the service as well, and that is, you know, this is Holy Week. It starts, obviously, with Palm Sunday. The kids always sing and wave their branches, and then um, we have, usually have some sort of event or worship service. This year, it's an event. There are um, two evenings, Thursday or Friday evening, where it's sort of an um, immersion experience. It starts every 10 minutes. It's about 45 minutes long. And we'd invite you to be join us on Thursday or Friday evening. Uh, starting, you'll, you'll, be, you'll move around the building and sort of experience some things that relate to Holy Week and relate to Jesus uh, last week on earth. So, excuse me, we look forward to seeing you there uh, this Thursday or Friday starting at 4 o'clock through 7. Again, it's not three hours long. It's about an hour long, but you can come during that period of time also. And one other thing, one other thing just the, the staff doesn't know I'm going to do this, but... I need to tell you, church, uh, you have done a great job of late in telling people about the Mosaic Cafe, because we are, we are, as a matter of fact, it was announced to the staff a couple weeks ago, don't eat lunch in the cafe any longer, we have too many guests and too many clients. So that's good news, but with that comes a little extra tension, is a good way to put it, in need of help. So we have some employee positions available, we also have some volunteer positions available, and we could... You, anywhere from 30 minutes to 20 hours a week, we'd love to hear from you, okay? <laughs> Seriously, both not just on the weekends, but throughout the day. We're open until about 1 o'clock each morning, so we'd love to have you get involved in that. So, with all of that, take your Bible, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 28. 
It's going to take us a few minutes to get there, but Matthew chapter 28 is where we'll be looking today. I want to start while you're looking for Matthew 20. It's about three quarters of the way through the Bible. Um, before we get to that, um, acknowledging that this is, um, there are things that go on in, our, in the 21st century that didn't go on before the 21st century, like selfies, for example. We chronicle, chronicle our lives these days with photos taken sometimes at these great and happy and appropriate moments, and we show some things, sometimes they're in really significant moments, and other times they're in very mundane moments. And I took a selfie of myself on Monday morning. This is what it was. It was me. I took it purposely for the sake of today's message, just after I had boarded a British Airways plane leaving from Chopin um, International Airport in Warsaw to travel to London. Uh, so I got on the plane. I had three seats to myself. Do you know how luxurious that is in a three-hour flight? And we were, it was, uh, I'll tell you in a bit about why I was up very, very early, and it was like, okay, I could stretch my legs out and actually sleep on the plane. So I did three hours to London, then a four-hour layover in Heathrow, which was just masses of people. Then a flight to Dallas where I didn't have three seats to myself. I was like this for nine and a half hours. And then home to Central Illinois, arriving here about one o'clock in the morning, Tuesday morning. And you're asking, well, why did you take the photo? Well, here's why. On the previous evening, Sunday night, a week ago today, I had dinner with friends in Warsaw. They have a home just outside of Warsaw. Um, we've known them for more than 40 years. We used to travel together, Polish people. It was a lovely evening. Uh, we travel as a band. We were in the band together. And um, we had fine food and much laughter and even some tears reminiscing about days of old. And the thought was to spend the night there, but frankly, because the flight was, I mean, I had to be up way before five o'clock, and, and then that means if to do that, you have to be up before four o'clock at their house to drive. I just said, I'll go to the hotel. There's a, a Marriott hotel, literally across the street from the airport. When I say across the street, I mean it is 300 yards at the most. You step out of the door, you cross one street, you cross the next street, there you are in the door of the, of the airport. And so um, the cost was $101 for me to stay in the Marriott, which was fine. And uh, when I walked in the room, I go, no, the $101 is worth it. The sheets were crisp and clean. And it was like, when the wake-up call came way, way too early, it was like, I don't want to get out of this bed. I mean, it, it was just one of those moments where you go, I this is so sweet to be, be doing here. And that selfie that I took a few hours later, um, and the hours beforehand, I took the photo because it was in direct contrast to the scenes that I had walked through in the week prior, in the days before. I'm referring, of course, to the scenes of crisis, fear, and worry, the stories of fear and the faces of war refugees in Poland. I must tell you, I'm glad to be home. And if you're unaware that I was gone, here's the story. A few weeks ago, we started a fund that said we were going to give some money to Ukrainian refugees. And in all honesty, I thought we might get $1,500, $1,200, maybe $2,000. And we know enough people in Poland, we could say, here, give it to somebody who needs some food. Uh, we wanted to care for Ukrainian refugees. And, but frankly, your responses were far beyond what, far, far beyond what I had anticipated. Um, and it was apparent that we couldn't just say, you guys take care of this hoping that would do some good. In fact, between your responses, other DHF churches heard what we were doing. 
some friends that used to travel with Leslie and me, and Jim Gilbert, some of you may know them, know Jim from years gone by, they started raising money, and it all came to our building, and suddenly, I need to tell you our, what I thought might be $1,200 is today more than $110,000, which is really great news. So, I mean, it speaks to the generosity of who you are, and congratulations on that. And so with, when I saw that money coming, I thought, man, we can't just send money sort of willy-nilly. We, and so we took some money from our global missions account, and I said, I'll go over and figure out where should we give this money. And I, I, I have four years of, of friendships there, 40 years more, and um, some of those people now are in places of influence across Poland. And I want us to think long-term about where is accountability in place? It was a fast trip in hundred, hundreds of miles across all of, of, um, of Poland, from Warsaw, north to the Baltic Sea, up by Gdansk, and then to the south and all the way, and here's a photo that's going to show you exactly the, the nation of Poland, and um, all the way out to, um, you see that circle? That's all the way out across right at the eastern border of Poland, East Poland, Western Ukraine, and a, a, a small town out there called Helm. It's spelled C-H-E-L-M, like we would say Chelm, but it's actually Helm. And um, the things that I saw, friends, I took the selfie because they are in such direct contrast to what I was experiencing sitting on that plane or in the Marriott the night before. I saw sights that are going to be with me the rest of my life. I heard stories, many of them similar, story after story. Women with children who are struggling to meet the needs of their families. Um, they arrive in Poland with maybe two sets of clothing, sometimes just one set of clothing. clothing. They're wearing winter, heavy winter jackets and boots, and with spring about to arrive, their clothing isn't suitable. They don't have food with them. They appear shell-shocked at first arrival. They've traveled sometimes for days through very dangerous settings. I, I, I met a young couple. They traveled 2,300 kilometers, so 1,415 miles, on what would normally be a 400-mile trip in order to get to the border going around the Russian army. I mean, that, for days. Um, most of them are, though, families of women with children, and they've left behind their husbands, their fathers, and their young adult sons, 16 years of age, maybe, but certainly 18 years of age, 18 to 60, if you're male, you're not allowed to leave the country under most circumstances. Some of the women have learned already of the deaths of the men in their family. And so they arrive in shelters completely exhausted, emotionally depleted, in desperate need of sleep. But of course, along the way, the children have slept. Slept on mom's shoulder, they've slept on the floor, whatever the case may be. And so the women arrive, they need to sleep deeply for a couple of days, and then you have two or three children per mother, and the children need care. Poland has no refugee camps for the Ukrainians. I visited a warehouse setting where they had, think about, you know, what a warehouse would look like if you're going to do a, a trade show, like, say, a home goods show or a tech show or um, a motor, uh, a car show or something like that. Five huge warehouses, one after the other, on the outskirts of Warsaw. And it's a site I will never forget. 30,000, 30,000 cots lined up, one after the other, people sleeping in them. People arrive on buses from the border. They're chartered by the government. When they, get, when they arrive, they're handed papers, they get work permits, 
And as they arrive at the warehouse, blankets and pillows are passed out to each individual, and they sleep. The government has contracted with a for-profit company that has experienced with daycare centers and said, can you set aside your for-profit business for a while? They've said, yes, we'll just manage this. Whatever the costs are, we'll take care of it. And we want you to provide day-to-day care for all the children. The company reached out to IKEA. IKEA has a, um, a factory in Poland with 8,000 workers. And they've stopped producing on the IKEA line, and they are just making children's furniture for daycare centers somewhere along the line of one million children that need care. The Israelis are involved. For the sake of children who have experienced war, the Israeli government has sent teams after team of Ukrainian-speaking Israelis who specialize in war trauma for little ones. You can see the ladies on that uh, outfit she has. You can see her Star of David. What did these kids see that might impact their psyches? In one of the centers, in one of the warehouses where they've got one of the daycare centers already set up inside the warehouse, uh, the children are making art. And uh, I was looking at all the art that was on the wall, and this was on the wall. It was in English. I mean, you you sort of automatically see something in English, your face is drawn to it. And um, uh, apparently, the director of the warehouses, who was kind of showing me around, he saw me looking at it, and a couple days later, this arrived by courier at the place where I was staying and said, Wayne, we think you should have this. And so my trip has given me some real insight into where we should place these funds, how we should manage the generosity that you have displayed and others have displayed. And I've written a report that if you want to see it, you can see it in the days ahead. By all means, just reach out to the office. But for today, considering sort of, if you will, that setting of what I've seen and saw during those 11 days I was there. And considering that crisis that's in Europe, it's reasonable for us who are followers of Jesus Christ to ask, what would Jesus say we should do in this moment? We're in the middle of this sermon series right now that um, is about the red letters that you see often in your Bibles. What did Jesus say throughout the four Gospels? Where are the places in in the biographies of Jesus? What did he say and what are the things that he said that we should follow. What would Jesus expect his followers to do or how to act considering the war in Europe, considering the violence and the refugee crisis there and, of course, in other parts of the world? What's our responsibility? And in a nutshell, the church and individual congregations, and each of us are individual as individuals, we have, if you will, what Jesus says, we have the responsibility to express care for humanity across the board in two basic ways. We ought to provide frontline care for people in need. Refugees, people without food, we need to care for them. And then secondly, we're to provide long-term care leading to evangelism, basically to where individuals will convert to Christianity. And so this morning, I want us to look at two different passages that describe that. One is in Matthew 28, but before we get to Matthew 28, let's, let's see what Jesus has to say, first of all, about frontline care about caring for those who are in desperate need, regardless of their faith and regardless of even their interest in Christian spirituality. Because where we're going to read in Matthew 25 right now, this features a scene where Jesus talks about you and me meeting God at some point in the future, at a final judgment. And it it features Jesus blessing those who followed his directives, blessing those who followed his red-letter sayings. It's a future scene, a final judgment in eternity. And this is not Matthew 28. This is Matthew 25. It'll be on the screens. When Jesus is going to say to people, come to me, come, pardon me, you are blessed by my Father. 
take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Here's why I want you to, here's why you get your blessings. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. Now, in, as Jesus is telling this, uh, if you look in between the lines there, and, and if you read more of that in, in Matthew 25, the people he's talking to are going to say, hey, but when did we do this? We don't, we don't remember seeing you hungry. We don't see, remember seeing you thirsty. We don't remember seeing you in need of clothing. And Jesus says, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, you did for me. He didn't mince words. Apparently, God is watching how you and I respond to people in need. And the needs that Jesus mentioned are the first needs of all people, aren't they? What some of us might know, if you think back to Western civilization, some history course some years ago, something about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Does that ring a bell with anyone? In other words, what are the basic things that all people need, regardless of who they are? In, in other words, basic human needs that everybody needs, like personal well-being and food and clothing and shelter, that all those have to be met before you can talk to anyone about education or belonging or wealth or even Christian spirituality. And Jesus said in that passage we've just read, take care of these people who have basic needs, frontline care. Christians are supposed to care for people in need. It's been a driving force for us for many years here at First Christian Church. I remember when we actually made a big shift in that regard. Uh, we were Before the cafe was there, that was a, a room back there, and we were in, the leaders of the church were in a gathering for a weekend with a consultant we'd brought in about the future of our church, and he asked a question that stung pretty hard. He, said, he asked this, if First Christian Church disappeared overnight, would anyone other than the members notice? Would the community be concerned that the church wasn't around? And he left the room. Great. Our honest assessment was, well, not really. We liked who we were, but would the community notice if we weren't around? Oh, we're interested in evangelism very much. We want people to come to know Christ. We want them to know Jesus, but telling a hungry person to become a Christian without first addressing the hunger issue is sinful. Sinful, you say? Yes. Jesus said, meet their body's needs first, then talk to them about me. So, consequently, as a church, we changed many things that we do about ministry around here. We actually spent money on the building. We thought, we need to do this, we need that. We started the work at the school. We started all kinds of different ministries. That's when the radio show started and all that stuff. We intentionally began running towards some struggles in our community and around the world. We realized that while we couldn't take on every matter of concern, we could impact some people in some settings for the sake of Jesus' name. So if you think about it, that culture has been with us almost 20 years now. That understanding has been with us almost 20 years. And so when, when I simply said, if you'd like to give some money to Ukrainian refugees, that culture, that understanding displayed itself with some significant dollars. Why did we raise money for Ukrainian refugees that we don't know? Well, because they're people in basic need. Why did I go to Poland last week? Because we have this understanding in the life of this church. If there's a mess that we can address... We will go there. We will care for the least of these people that Jesus expects us to, he expects us to do it. And, and I saw that over and over and over last week. For example, 
After being in lots of settings where the Ukrainian, where the Ukrainian refugees are trying to figure out how they're doing life and they're getting some momentum in their new surroundings, it was really intense, really intense, Sunday through Friday and into Saturday. But then on Sunday, just a week ago, um, I was asked to play keys, keyboard, for a church about 90 minutes south of Warsaw. And the band in that church is probably the best-known Christian band in Poland, and they needed, hello, a keyboard player for the weekend. <laughs> Their music is similar to our style. In fact, some of the charts that we sing here, they were singing there. Of course, they were translated into Polish, and I'm glad for that. And I'm glad that I didn't have to read the Polish, but I could read the notes, and as long as I could read music, I could have con contribute. And that was all fun. It was great. It was fun. I, you know, they, they'd reached out to me before I even left. Wayne, bring your ears. In other words, bring your ear monitors in case we can use them. So I took them. And, but at one point in the service, here's where I'm going with all of this. Two Ukrainian Christian families. That church has um, 200 people staying with them a night in the building. That church um, brought two of those families on, on the stage. And in one case, one of the fathers is in Poland. And he prayed. And then his wife prayed. And then one of the least prayed. A little girl, nine years old. Her prayer? She prayed for the children of Poland, saying, God, I pray that the children of Poland will thank you for, their, for the days when their fathers can be close to them. Please protect my daddy as he is in Ukraine serving the army. Now, Usually playing piano or keys takes two hands, right? I knew enough, know enough Polish to understand, understood what was going on. And I, I literally started playing with only, because they wanted underscore. Underscoring means the keyboard players play something, just a little music bed underneath. When we do an underscore while the prayer's going on, and I, it, it, was, it was, I pressed my left hand into my eyes so hard so that I wouldn't just weep. Many of the dollars that you gave in recent weeks for the Ukrainian refugees will be directed to the least of these, particularly Ukrainian children. And you'll learn more about that in the coming weeks. But while we do that in Jesus' name, because Jesus said, care for the least of these, be mindful, there's also some intentionality in how we approach not only this frontline ministry, but this backline ministry about converting people. It goes back to another red-letter statement that Jesus made in, um, in Matthew chapter 28, if you'll turn there. This second aspect of ministry, this aspect of leading people to Jesus. I said we focus on two aspects of ministry, frontline care and then straight-up evangelism. We take care of basic human needs for this life to, talk, to, to deal with people in this life, but then we want to be able to also talk to people about the next life, eternal life. Here's how Jesus put it. He came to his disciples... And he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is considered Jesus' great commission. It's one of the last statements he made after his resurrection, before he went to heaven. It's about evangelism. It's about conversion, moving people from non-Christian to Christian. And the Great Commission is, our, is the basis of the mission that we have here at First Christian Church. We say our mission is this. 
We want to develop devoted followers of Jesus Christ. There it is. We want to make disciples. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. We want to make devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And here's how we do it, by growing and serving together. The Great Commission, friends, is a command from Jesus. It's, it's a directive, not a simple suggestion. It's not like, hey, when you get a moment and when the mood hits, uh, maybe go tell some other people about me. And if it's convenience, try to get every nation involved. No, it's not that at all. Based on his authority that came to him as a result of his death on the cross and his resurrection and the power of the Spirit within him, he said, you are to go. I'm telling you, go to every nation. Because this is our understanding, that anyone without a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, catch this, anyone without a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that person is our target audience. Jesus said, Go make disciples of what? Of all nations. Now, there's an interesting note in this Great Commission that you probably, we probably don't see it in English in Jesus' words. Uh, some of, my, of you have might heard me explain this in the past. And my interest in, particularly today, when it comes to this Great Commission, is where we go. We know who we go to. We go to the least of these. But where do we go? Apparently, all nations. So that would include, amongst some of the nations in this room, would be Americans, Canadians, Australians, Kenyans, Cubans, Poles, Ukrainians, and Russians. Jesus said, go make disciples of all nations. And here's what's interesting about this nation's business that we don't see fully in English. The Greek word for, for nations that you see translated in your Bible that we saw just now, that Greek word is ethnos. It, it means each ethnos. Can you hear the ethnic word there, that, that word ethnic there? It means each ethnic group. And Jesus is referring to each ethnic person, each ethnic, pardon me, nation. So while Americans and Canadians and Aussies and South Africans and Brits, we all speak English, each of those places is a different ethnic group. We, we, because there are subgroups within, even within those nations. And that assessment is based on the peculiarity, peculiarities of each group. The history of America is different than the history of Britain. It's different than the history of South Africa. So while sometimes it's common languages, but even then we are still different. There's a different history, a different culture. And Jesus expects us to go to all those different cultures. And people called missiologists, missions experts have figured out how many different people groups there are around the world. And if you just start with languages alone, there are 11,000 people groups around the world, 11 different languages at least. It's estimated, though, that some 2,000 of those 11,000 languages do not yet even have any version of the scriptures in their language. Many of them don't even have languages that are written down yet. So we know at least... There are a lot of people who have yet to hear about Jesus. Some 2,000 different people groups still need to have someone go to them as Jesus commanded. That's why First Christian Church and other churches like ours were involved in international, international mission projects. Yes, we're involved in Jesus' ministry work here in our community and across the nation. We do the care and we, we do the evangelism in our own community. Yes, all that is good and great. 
And as Pastor BJ indicated in his message last weekend, we strive to be the tangible touch of Jesus Christ in individuals' lives and in settings also that involve many people. But we also go to places, First Christian Church, we have to go to places where the story of Jesus Christ is still basically unknown. An international global endeavor of making disciples for, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's straight-up evangelism. Now, we might use a variety of different vehicles, but the goal is care for people. Jesus said, the least of these, make them disciples. So straight-up evangelism has caused our work in Kenya amongst the Maasai to go from zero churches. Seriously, first Christian churches work in Kenya in the mid-1980s. No churches there in the Maasai land. And today there are more than 300 churches that's First Christian Church's influence there, to the point now where we have today second-generation Maasai Christians leading the church there. We're no longer in charge. Our church and our representatives and the Kazirs and so forth are no longer in charge. There's the, we are, we've been fulfilling the great commission of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we go to those who don't follow Jesus with the express purpose of making them disciples. Yet... We also reach into people's lives simply to express Jesus' love and touch. That's why you gave money. Thank you. That's why I went to Poland. What did I learn? I did see sights that caused great alarm. I saw the images of those warehouses full of cots and full of people. Those images are burned in my memory. Ah. That was 9 o'clock Monday morning, two weeks ago, when I walked into that space. It was overwhelming. I saw the joy, though, in the hastily built daycare centers of children just having a great time making a mess. Absolutely making a mess. What I saw, though, both makes me smile and cry. Smile for, the joy, smile for their joy, but cry for the reason that they are not in their own homes, their own schools, and their own beds. Friends, I can tell you this. Your brothers and sisters in Christ, in Poland, individual congregations are making a significant difference. The, na the, the, the national government has leaned into the church and said, we don't have places to put all these people. We can put them in the warehouse for a few days, but they can't stay there. So there's no bathing facilities. If you think about it, if you go to a showroom, is there enough bathing facilities for 5,000 people overnight? It's not there. There are no kitchens. We're going to have to lean into the places that's available, churches. And so um, I went to those places in a room like ours or a room like in the East Auditorium, they're just moving. Everything stops. And they say, y'all come. We'll find mattresses, sleep on the floor, sleep on the pews. I went to a church just 15 miles from the western border between Poland and Ukraine. It's that same place that I, you saw a minute ago. It's the first church on the highway. It's not a large church, 150 people. Yet they're caring for refugees down in Helm. They're caring for children. I sat down with their pastor. His name is Henrik last week, and he told me that um, in the five weeks that they doing, had been doing that at that point, they had cared for more than 3,600 people in a building that would be perhaps a quarter of the size of ours. They sleep there. 
They've put the pews together in some cases so people can push sleep on, on a pew, but most often they're just allowing people to have mattresses on the floor. They have about 180 people per night. And then some of them stay for up to three, months, three weeks. Some stay three nights, but most are staying for weeks. And so that means they've got to figure out how we're going to feed all these people three times a day. They have a kitchen, but it's not a commercial kitchen. It's not set up for that. So I mean, it's one thing if you have a fellowship dinner once a month. But they don't have, so they don't have refrigerators or freezers or even food. And there was, none of that was in their budget. They needed help. The arriving Ukrainians arrive with the clothes on their backs. They have to be washed more often. You've only got one set of clothes. You've got to wash them more often, right? The church needed washing machines. It wasn't in their budget. I gave them some money. Buy, buy refrigerators. Buy, buy washing machines. And I met children, dozens of them. They are refugees removed from their homes, removed from their fathers, removed from their nation. They are the least of these that Jesus spoke about that we read in red letters. And I must tell you, friends, my emotions are overwhelmed. At times I'm lost for words except for words like, Jesus, have mercy. These are the least of these you mentioned. And sometimes I don't have words to pray. Neither do you, right? We simply sit in silence before God. Our spirit's mourning that there are some in this world that need help. And Jesus said, go. Go.